I always feel like my mom's here when we do that. Like, Go, Dan. I don't know. Hey, everybody. How are we doing? It's been quite a ride the past uh, seven weeks. Today's the eighth week we've spent in uh, the old, one of the oldest uh, stories that we really have as a people, as, as humans, right? Like the story from the 400s BC is one of the more ancient of stories that we have. We've been journeying through this uh, memoir of this guy named Nehemiah from the Old Testament, and he lived in the 400s in uh, BC, that is before Jesus, uh, and, uh, and we've learned a ton. And, and uh, here's, here's what we saw. We saw that Nehemiah was a man who, who God moved in his life. And he moved in his life to give him a dream to go rebuild this community. God moved him. He literally moved him from where he was in this Cush palace to Jerusalem, the ancestral city. And here's the question that I have for all of us right from the beginning, for all of us in the room and for all of us who are joining online. Here's the question that we all have today. The question I want to ask us is, what do you do when God prompts you to move? What do you do when God prompts you to move? As I ask that question, I'm curious if I could just maybe even have a little moment of audience participation. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt like, a, like very viscerally like God was calling you to make a move? Like maybe it was a physical move, a career move, God was calling you to move. Anybody ever feel this, like God's called you? Yeah, many of us, many of us in the room, I know many of you in the chat, you're saying, ah, that's been me. I know Kristen and I, we, we feel like God called us to make a physical move recently where we relocated from Indiana, uh, a great basketball state, to Kansas a better basketball state. Just say it. I mean, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning the ropes out here. Uh, from Chicago, a crappy football state. Never mind. You know the rest. All right. So, uh, so, so God calls you sometimes to like make a move. And maybe, maybe you've made a move. Maybe you felt God calling you to a specific area or a specific moment or, or a house opened up that you kind of felt like, I don't know why that house, but there's something there that God wants me to be a part of. Maybe it's being neighbors or being home base or being able to have space or something. God's calling me to do this. I'm going to make a move. Or maybe it's a, it's a career move. Some of you right now, statistics tell us that um, a third of America's workforce right now is considering resi re resigning their job this month. A third. Wow. Anybody in the room thinking about it? Just kidding. You don't have to raise your hands. Your bosses are in the room. That's okay. Uh, that's a lot of people right now, considering after COVID, kind of this whole work-life balance, what do I want to do in the fact that like, I don't have to go to an office anymore? Like, what, should I make a move? And sometimes God, God puts it in your heart to make a move. What do you do when God prompts you to move? Some of you are in the stage of life where you've just gotten married and you're asking the question, like, when do we move from one kid to two kids? Or even harder, from two kids to three kids, right? Some of you are considering you feel like God's prompting you to move because you have zero kids, but he's given you the opportunity to adopt one kid. What do you do when God prompts you to move? What we found over the past two months is that, uh, from the life of Nehemiah, is that God has been on the move, that God-sized dreams require movement. So God moves in Nehemiah's heart, and then he moves in the king's heart, and then he moves in the people's heart, and the people get to work moving on this wall, and within 52 days, they create this monumental wall, two miles around. It's this incredible feat. It's something that is absolutely, absolutely incredible. I think what we've learned so far as a church is that when God is on the move, here's the point, when God is on the move, we better be ready to move. When God's on the move, you better be ready to move. And, and here's where we come to today is we kind of just put a period on this series, Monumental. Here's where the situation is sort of the last installment, the last episode, last chapter. I don't know how we talk about these things these days, you know, podcasts and uh, Hulu have screwed me up. But the last episode in this whole memoir is this. The people need to make a move. And here's why. I want you just to look. I'm going to put it on the screen at Nehemiah chapter 7. 
verse 4. It says this. It says, now the city was large and spacious. Doesn't that sound awesome? It sounds a lot like Kansas City. It's large and spacious. But there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. This may be surprising to us. Because we've been talking all about how God's restoring, God's rebuilding, that the city was the thing that would allow the reflourishing of the community. We kind of imagine that like everything was ready to go. All they needed was just like a wall. If they just had a wall, like they'd be fine. But, but it was pretty bad in Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem didn't have a wall, and so therefore it didn't have citizens. Without a wall, they couldn't provide basic protection, and the people moved away from the the, the urban devastation, and they built quiet lives out in the sleepy suburbs. It sounds like a very 20th century thing, but this is what happened in the 400s, 500s BC. For almost 150 years, the Israelites kind of moved into fields, and they farmed, and they paid their taxes quietly, and they built new trading partners. They set up a new life that was away from the city. But Nehemiah didn't come back just to build a monument. He came back to help the Jewish people start over. He came back to help them have a new Beginning, a new beginning, a new, a new beginning. And that's the new beginning that he leads them to as we come to this uh, it's part of the scriptures that I want to just show us today. Nehemiah chapter 11 uh, starts this way. It says, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. It's a biblical principle that leaders go first. If you're leading a company, you're leading a people, you're leading a, a, a group, you, the, this is true. Leaders go first. First, they take the first steps, they invest the first money, they're the first ones uh, there, they're the first to be. The leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, the rest of the people, now check this out, they cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem. Okay, if you don't know what casting lots is, it's like a game you would play at a casino, like throwing dice or drawing short sticks. And the people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had a wall. Jerusalem had a temple. But Jerusalem didn't have people, and it didn't have homes. And this is how bad it was in Jerusalem. There's three groups of people that Nehemiah points out here, and I just want to list them out for us so we can kind of see where we are in it. The first, there were those who were contracted to live there. They were the leaders. They were the ones who the king was paying to lead the city. And one of the stipulations, if you're going to be an alderman in Jerusalem, you've got to live in your precinct. So here's your money, but you've got to live on site. Some people were contracted. Other people were um, drafted. They were coerced. It um, struck me this week thinking about this because this past week we celebrated Veterans Day as a country. It's a time where we say thank you to all the brave men and women who have ever participated in our armed forces to say thank you for their investment, their involvement, and their, their sacrifices that they've made. And, and, and we as a people, we as a church appreciate that. Don't we, church? I mean, that's an amazing thing. We love those who... Stand in the gap on our behalf. That's such a, a, a blessing. I, I was um, reminded by one of our staff members this, uh, this week that their uncle was drafted into the Vietnam uh, War. And uh, they told me these stories about how the draft went and how a little date on a little slip of paper could determine your future. We know from history, many of the people who went and fought in Vietnam did so willingly, but a lot of them found their way into this war because of a draft. The people in Jerusalem, one out of every 10 families was required to, to, to pull sticks. And, and if you had the short stick, you had to move your family and go start over in a brand new part of 
the city. They were not contracted. They were, for lack of a better word, coerced. They were required. Their name came up, and that was that. But here's the group of people that I really want to focus on for the rest of our time today. The people that I really want to focus on is this third group of people. Verse 2 lists the third group of people. These are the people that, that were, look at what it says. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Some people were contracted, and some people were compelled, but this this group was compelled. Some people were contracted, some people were coerced, and this group was compelled. They were compelled to, to, to join the mission that God had established for them to rebuild this city. See, so, I'll say it this way. Some people were paid to live in the city. Some people were made to live in the city. And these people, they were unafraid to live in the city. They saw the monumental work that God had started, and they, in their depths of their being, wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to volunteer, and so they did. And all the people gathered around and said, look at these people. They're actually giving up earnestly, generously what they want to do. They're going to move in and help us. And then they, they commended them. They said this, here's to the volunteers. Here's to those who are going, wow, way to go, guys. That's incredible. I'm going to stay back here, but good. you go storm the castle. Good luck. Volunteers. You know, some words in the Bible carry really deep significance. This word volunteers in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 2 is one of those words. If you dig into um, what, it, what it started out as in the uh, Hebrew language, it, it has a couple points to it. The first is that it, it's actually not motivated by outside factors. The volunteer is someone who had an intrinsic, deep-down desire that was internally motivated. They, they were compelled by something to do something. They willingly, here's the, here's the second part, they willingly and sacrificially gave. Volunteers. Uh, Ezra is a companion book to Nehemiah. Ezra rebuilt the temple. If we fast forward or, or go backwards a little bit to Ezra's story, it's like the prequel to Nehemiah. Ezra tells us that there were people in, uh, in this town in chapter 1, uh, verse 5 of Ezra. It said this, says, everyone whose heart God had moved. Who had moved? Who was it that moved their hearts? God. Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And then check out what happened with all, the other, all these other people. It says, all their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts. In addition to all the, and then the same word for volunteers shows up right here, but we translate it with all the free will offerings. With all the free will offerings. Why did these people give? Why did they volunteer their offerings? Why did they volunteer themselves? Because God had moved in their hearts. And I think this word volunteer is a great word, but we've lost a lot of the sense of the meaning of it. And, and here's the word that I think we actually should use for this group of people. They're not just volunteers. They're not just people who are compelled internally. I want to call these people, I think this is a better word. You ready for the word? I think this, the, the, what we should call these people is this. We call them dream makers. Okay, that's a little bit better, isn't it? You guys pay me to come up with these words, so... Um. <laughs> It was a little better, wasn't it? Okay, okay. The dream makers. These are people who saw the dream that God had put deep inside of the people's heart. And they said in response to it, something deep inside of me says that I should give what I have. I should be generous with what I have. I should sacrifice what I have so that I can be a part of making that dream a reality. See, here's what we learned from Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 2, that the volunteers were those who were dream makers. Dream makers make generous sacrifices. That's what it means in the volunteer for, for, for Nehemiah, that people would make generous sacrifices. There's something intrinsic about their generosity. It comes from a deeper place. God moved it in their heart. Dream makers, I think, are compelled when others are coerced. 
And what were they compelled by? They were compelled by God's promises and God's presence, that God promised to be with them and that God was moving amongst them and that his, his promises were for their flourishing if they would trust in him. I think it, we see this. Dream makers hear God prompting them to move and they move. You know, in life, some people will give their resources. Some people will give their energy. But dream makers will give their very lives to the dreams that God gives them. Okay, so how does this play out for us today? I think of, um, I think of people in our community who I think are local dream makers. Can I name a few? Um, the first that I want to say is um, I think this embodies perfectly those in our community who teach our kids as school teachers. You ever looked at how much, okay, how little we pay school teachers? And do you know how crazy your kids are? <laughs> you don't have to amen that, school teachers, we got you. <laughs> what is it about a school teacher? Is it the paycheck? No. What is it about a school teacher that, that makes them want to invest in the community, that makes them want to be a part of actually doing something. Is it the summer breaks? No. It's because these are people who have been compelled from the inside to realize that a greater value in life is instilling courage and honesty and character into the lives of young people who actually form the fabric of society so that they can build a better world through people. We as a church, I think, want to be the type of people who celebrate dream makers and say, hey, here's to the volunteers. Can we just celebrate our school teachers for a moment? Like, Here's what gets me about school teachers is that um, they don't do it for the money. They don't do it because people are twisting their arms. They're compelled, compelled to give back. I think of my friends. Um, Brian and Kristen, who a couple of years ago had this deep desire, this dream in their heart, this, this thing where they, they realized that not every kid has a family. It, it, bur it burdened them. It bothered them. And so they met these two girls who were sisters. They were sisters from the Ukraine. And they met them. They fell in love with these girls. And they said, we'll, we'll bring you into our family. And then they found out that they had another younger sister. And they said, well, okay, well, we're already being this generous, but we might as well be a little bit more. And then they found out that there was an older brother. <laughs> And instead of saying, like, no, 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 we've, we've only got this much space, they made space to bring these, this whole group of kids over from the Ukraine to give them every part of their lives to generously and sacrificially give because they were making dreams a reality. They were investing in another generation. They were giving them all of their life. This is what it looks like to be a volunteer, to be a dream maker. And we as a people, we want to say thank you to those of you here at Heartland who are in this dream making space, bringing so many people into your homes to be able to part of the foster care system or, 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 or adopting. I think... Uh, this Saturday is National Adoption Awareness Day. And we as a church care deeply about this issue. And we want to say, here's to the volunteers, those who have brought people into their lives. Don't we want to say that? We want to say thank you for being dream makers. I, I could do this all day. I, I could just share with you story after story after story. I was going to tell you a story about my friend Michael who did a second tour in the Marines because he wanted to just like love people who were giving their all for the country. I could tell you that story. I, could, I don't have time to tell you other stories. And here's, here's just what I want to say. You're with me already, right? You're with me? Yeah. So here's a question for you. What is it that God's put on your heart that is a dream that he's asked you to take a step in and move into? 
What is it that for the past couple of weeks, as we've been talking about God-sized dreams, as we've been kind of keeping that term kind of vague, because I don't want to over-apply. I don't want you to think you all got to go start a business or you all got to start a nonprofit or you all got to adopt kids. I don't know what it is that God has for you specifically in your life, but you do. It's probably that thing that you've been pushing down and pushing to the side because you got all your excuses. It'll mess up my family. I'll have to move. I'll have to do all this stuff. And, and, and what we're learning is that dream makers are, are okay being inconvenienced. People who have a, a God-sized dream are willing to take the risk to step out in faith and to see God do the thing that he gave them, the dream. I wonder, what is that for you? What is it that's keeping you from stepping in? What is it that God's put on your heart that would cause your life to be interrupted in all the best ways? You see, dream makers make generous sacrifices. And I love this church. I know I've only been here for a couple months, but I'm getting to know your heart and your soul. I, I can tell you all the dream makers in this space, in this room right now, so many of you have given sacrificially to the work of God right here at, at Heartland over the years, watching uh, people's kids and, and growing up the next generation and investing into uh, people who are far from God so that they could see the radical, crazy, sacrificial generosity of our God. And Heartland, I want you to know this. We're a dream-making church. We're a church where dream-makers step up and step in. We're a church where we don't want to just be contracted to be here or be coerced to be here, but we're compelled by God to make a difference in this region. We're a church that's compelled by God to give all that we have so that he can realize the dream. And I just want to say to all of you who are making that dream a reality, I want to say here's to you the volunteers. Dream makers make generous sacrifices. Well, the people move into the city. It's time for them to make generous sacrifices. And I love at the beginning of something new, you know, build a brand new school, you got like a coronation day or a dedication day. You build a new church, you got dedication services, you got Joe Bluth out there with the big scissors cutting the ribbon. And this is what happens in Jerusalem. There's a big dedication ceremony. I think it looks probably a lot like Harry and Meghan's wedding with a lot of pomp and circumstance. And there was a lot of religious symbols and a lot of things happening that maybe people didn't understand. But something crazy happens in the midst of this, you know, very tight, buttoned up, pomp and circumstance ceremony. Nehemiah turns the moment from prim and proper into a raucous Mardi Gras parade. Look what he says, uh, verse 31 of chapter 12. He says, then I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. You kind of get the moment that this is the part in the party where, like, you probably should call for a ride home and, like, get out of there because things are just going crazy, right? Uh, Nehemiah says, hey, why don't you guys get up on top of the wall? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how one of the enemies said, uh, a taunt was like, if a fox goes on top of the wall, it would topple it down. And Nehemiah says, I'll show you toppling down our wall. Everybody's going to get up on top of it. So the, all the, the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. And he says, I assigned two large choirs to give thanks. And he sends them out in different directions. I think this is the first recorded uh, Congo line in, in history. I think it's right here. Nehemiah took a victory lap, sent the choir this way, half the choir the other way. And it wasn't just leaders. Look at verse uh, 43. On that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. And then in a patriarchal society, you always got to pay attention when women and children show up. I know that's not our, that's not our society today. We're not this way. But, but when you understand how their society was and, and details like this are included, you got to just kind of 
take a moment to appreciate them. Because Nehemiah says, the women and the children also rejoiced. Everybody was getting down at this party. Everybody was involved in celebrating the monumental work that had been accomplished because God had used everybody to be a dream maker. And here's what we see here. Dream makers make generous sacrifices, but look what happens in return. We see that dream makers receive great joy. Dream makers receive great joy. They give sacrificially. They give generously. But look at what happens. They receive joyfully. God gives them great joy. Who gave it to them? God gave them great joy. What were they joyful over? They were joyful because God had done so much in their monumental story. Let me just remind you of some of the things that we saw over the past couple of weeks in Nehemiah that would have caused these people to have great joy. They were rejoicing because God had done what only God could do. They were rejoicing because waiting on God was not a waste. They were rejoicing because the dream had a team. They were rejoicing because they heard the voice of God louder than the enemies. They were rejoicing because the people were no longer divided but united. They were rejoicing because they had said no to all the distractions and stayed focused, faithful, and free. And they were said no because God had done the bigger dream, not just restore a wall, but restored a people. And they gave thanks. You know, um, it's a biblical principle that on the other side of sacrifice is joy. The other side of sacrifice is joy. But it's not just a biblical principle. Actually, um, science, which everybody loves when a pastor talks about science. Science backs this up too. Um, I saw research from Carnegie Mellon University, some hacks somewhere. That was a joke. Was that not funny? <laughs> I don't know. I think they're brilliant. Carnegie Mellon, uh, they did this, uh, this, this study. They partnered with a small school called Harvard uh, to do this. And they researched volunteering. And what they found out was that volunteering, those who volunteered uh, had improvements to their mental and physical health. They said this, that people who volunteer have lower stress in their lives than people who don't. And people who volunteer have lower blood pressure. And this is a quote from Carnegie Mellon. And they live longer on average. Now listen, I ain't no scientist. I'm not sure how to make sense of all the data. I'm just telling you what they said. And I was like you, a little skeptical. Because at first I was like, what is this, volunteerforamerica.org? Like, who am I reading this from? Is this like skewed research? So I went and did a little bit more digging and found out that the good people at the Mayo Clinic also published a study on volunteering where they affirmed the same exact statistics, except they added a little bit. This is what Mayo Clinic said. They said that people who volunteer have less depression and anxiety than those who don't. And then they added this. They said the main driver of positivity in these people's lives was that doing something for the sake of others or the community released a hit of dopamine, which relieves stress. Okay, so um, true story. I read all this this week, and I was like, man, that sounds amazing. I kind of feel a little stressed. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to see 
how this works. And so this week, I actually went about my week looking for ways for myself to be radically generous and to be sacrificial and to, to, you know, to, to see if I could find great joy in volunteering. And then <clears throat> I had this great big plan, and then my wife went out of town and left me with the kids. And I <clears throat> learned very quickly that all of my efforts were going to be reduced to just keeping my kids alive, which I did. Thank you, Dad of the Year. And um, it was Friday. Friday morning, I was off getting my kids to school and kind of was um, trying to do the thing that my wife does so brilliantly every single day, kind of getting the kids ready. And I know that, like, I just don't have it in me the same way. And so I, was, I, was, I got them to school on time, and, and I had my preschooler who I had to get to the other side of Overland Park. And um, I, I just was like, okay, buddy, um, listen, it's kind of been a morning, and so uh, we're going to go to Starbucks before we go to school. Something you need to know about me is that, um, you know, some of you have toddlers that you don't hang out with unless they nap. I don't want to be hanging out with people unless I've had four cups of coffee. And Friday, I had zero cups of coffee. So I said to Graham, I know you're going to be late, buddy. We're getting coffee. And so I raced into the Starbucks drive through line and um, accidentally cut off somebody in the process who followed me into the Starbucks drive through line. Have you ever been there? You do crazy things in this moment. I started um, fake talking to my real kid in the back seat. <laughs> so the person that I, was looking at me would think I was just distracted by them and didn't see them. But I knew what I'd done. I knew it. And the thing about this situation is there's nowhere to go. <laughs> like, you just don't have it. There's no exit strategy. You got to hop a curb, take down some plants. I thought about it. It was awkward. And all I wanted was my venti blonde roast coffee with, with nothing else in it. Just, a, just give me the cheapest, biggest coffee I can get. And um, we get up to the place. I, I'm kind of in a rush. I'm in a hurry. And I go and I give them, give them my app because I'm a millennial and I don't pay with anything except for digital stuff. And I give them my app and I say, here you go. Uh, can we get this moving? And they hand me my coffee. And the barista takes the scan gun away. And she goes, just kidding. The person in front of you paid for you. And I was like, what? And I thought, this is my opportunity to do something radically generous. I could pay for the person behind me. That's like the craziest idea in the world. That's like right up there behind giving someone a shopping cart at Aldi without asking them to give me back the quarter. That's incredible. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> and so I said to the lady, well, I said, no problem. Why don't you pay? Why don't you tell me how much the bill is for the person behind me? <laughs> she goes, $10.58. I looked at my venti coffee and I said, ah, well, let's just do it. And I did just like, I was like, ah, let's just do it. And she scanned my thing and I raced away as if I like had a secret that I don't want the person behind me to know. I kind of felt like I was paying for my goodwill back, but you know, I, I got away from him. And then I got to the stoplight and uh, I started in my mind, like imagining, like, I wonder what that person felt like when they found out that her whole entire breakfast was paid for. Just one dude in a big Jeep, like, I don't know, he seems like a big eater. Five dollar cup of coffee, five dollar sandwich. I wonder if he thought it was pretentious of me to pay for his thing. I wonder actually if he decided to do the same thing for the person behind him 
This is literally where my mind went. I wonder if, if, if now there's gonna be like 200 people in a row who are gonna go through that Starbucks because I kept it going. I wonder if we're gonna be on social media because like we did the thing where we were all radically generous and we gave Starbucks all of our money. Like I wonder if we were, if we were gonna like, if I went back in an hour, could I get free stuff still? And so I'm sitting in the subway having all of these thoughts. And then I kid you not, I'm smirking as I'm having these thoughts. And my son from the back seat sees me in the mirror. He goes, Dad, what's so funny? And I wanted to tell him, I don't know, son. I just got a hit of dopamine because I did something really nice for somebody else. And I didn't because he's four. Couldn't understand that. I just said, son, it's a really good day. I found out that it's true. On the other side of sacrifice, there's joy. But we've known this as a people of God, haven't we? We've known this because we have the ultimate dream maker as our model. I think about Jesus Christ who left his corner of the world and came down and moved into our neighborhood and emptied himself and made the greatest sacrifice ever recorded in the history of humanity. He gave up his entire self, his whole life, that he could die on the cross so that we could be forgiven and clean before a holy and good God. And he came back from the dead. And he rose to life. And I think about Nehemiah sending the people on the top of the wall as a victory lap to show everybody, look in the face of their enemies, look what God did. I think about Jesus. You know, we don't think about this a lot. We think about Jesus dying, Jesus sacrificing, all the pain, the excruciation, the Good Friday, all that stuff. How, when was the last time you thought about the joy of Jesus? I think Jesus is the most joyful being in the entire world because the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. And I have this picture of Jesus coming up out of the grave on that Easter Sunday, trampling over death, sin, and hell, and the devil himself, and doing a little dance. I wouldn't do it because I'm not Scottish, I'm white, okay? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think Jesus was just incredibly joyful. Why? Because on the other side of sacrifice, there's always joy. And God gives joy to the dream makers. God gives joy to those who give of themselves. Jesus started a new beginning for us in his resurrection from the dead. And I think that's something that brings him a lot of joy. I think it's something that brings all of us a lot of joy. So we say here's to the volunteers, the dream makers, the sacrificial and the joyful. Just like today, the joy spread. Look, look back, it's the last thing I want to say from Nehemiah to us for a very long time. Look, look, look at what, look at the last verse we want to read this. It says, on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And then check this out. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Dream makers make generous sacrifice. They receive great joy and they leave a great impact. A great impact. Shouts and songs reverberated from the region uh, into those who were far away so they could hear the joy. It, it was the people who were furthest out that probably heard the loudest shout. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of, um, of Christmas. Christmas. Everybody knows Christmas is coming. It's the most wonderful time of the year. If you're not listening to Christmas music yet, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Just to clear that up. It reminds me of uh, that movie that we're going to watch as a family this year, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You remember the, the premise of the Grinch, you know, takes all the toys and everything and brings them back up to his little 
uh, mountaintop, and then Christmas morning, he expects to hear wailing and gnashing of teeth, and yet he wakes up and he hears far away a sound of rejoicing. Because all down in Whoville, all the Whos were gathered together singing. And this is the moment when the Grinch realized that you can't buy Christmas from a store. It was actually in your heart. And it was the joy of the Whos down in Whoville that actually caused the Grinch to have a change of heart. See, great rejoicing leaves a great impact. Now, that's Dr. Seuss theology, okay? But the same principle is true here in Nehemiah. Don't ever underestimate the significance that you can make, the significant impact you can make with one small sacrifice. Don't ever imagine that what, what God has prompted in your heart for you to move out and it may feel like a small thing, but when you take step after step and God leads you step after step and you make sacrifice after sacrifice and you see joy after joy, the people around you will be impacted by the life that you lead and they'll have no other recourse except for to say, that person's life and God is really incredible. The, the rejoicing was found not just in the walls of Jerusalem, but way outside the walls. I think I want to say it this way, that dream makers leave a great impact and change lives. There's so many things that would happen here in the next couple of hundred years in Jerusalem, but the people had just started a new beginning where God was about to reshape the entire world, to send Jesus through that city to be crucified just outside of those gates so that he could pay the ultimate sacrifice, receive the greatest joy, and create an impact that would last all the way down ripples through eternity to today here in Olathe, Kansas. I mean, it's kind of insane that we're at a church today in the middle of the heartland of America celebrating someone who was crucified in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. But that's the impact that Jesus has had in all of our lives. I'm not saying that you're going to change the course of history. That's kind of God's job. But I wonder what dream you have that you could follow through. Give of yourself. Receive joy and change lives. Um, maybe as I put a period on this, I want to talk about our community here at Heartland for a moment. Across America, the end of the year is a huge opportunity for um, people to be radically generous. I want to do a, a thing I'm, that I probably shouldn't do here. So will you guys play along with me for a moment? Um, I'm curious if you've ever been to a church who has asked you for money at the end of the year. Show of hands. A little higher. And if you're angry about it, put up another one. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Uh, Every church does this, right? Because the charitable thing and the whole thing and Christmas and all that and then budgets and whatnot, like char charitable giving is a really big deal at the end of the year. I, uh, can you just hear me say like, Heartland's not about that? Can, can you hear me say that? Like I, there's no card here, there's no, no nothing. Here's what I wanna, I wanna say is that just naturally through the course of life, God gives us opportunities for us to be a generous church. And I think here at the end of the year is a great time for us to start, but I don't want it to end at the end of the year. I think the beginning of next year is a better time for us to start. And so um, here's what I want to just bring to your attention. 
Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Pastor Brad did a great job helping us understand the need we have in this community to impact 200 families to help them have a Thanksgiving that would bring joy to their hearts. And just a little bit of sacrifice would bring a little bit of joy and leave a huge impact. And I hope that you'll participate in that. And then we're going to do gifts from the heart in December. A way for us to be able to, uh, now it's meals from the heart, I'll get to that in a second. But gifts from the heart is just a way to give gifts to families who can't help themselves. But, but, but I, we don't want to be a church that just ends the year strong. We don't want to be a church that just has a good end of the year generosity campaign. I'm way more interested in what happens for us at the beginning of the year. I think that we can begin the year in 2022 with some radical generosity that will make an absolute deep impact into the culture that we live in and around the world. So on January 2nd, here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to just think about this. Just pray about this. Just ask God, would you compel my heart to be moved in this way that I could give sacrificially in a new year, not at the end of this year, but in a new year, that we could be radically generous people. You know, the, the, the pandemic has really messed up a lot of things in our lives. It's disrupted businesses, it's disrupted supply chains, it's done all these things. We have been inconvenienced in a mild way. You probably can't buy a new car right now. Maybe that makes you angry. But in most of the world, the disruption in the supply chain has disrupted food supply, which means there are literally countries who are struggling to figure out how to feed their people. And listen, Heartland, I believe that is unacceptable. And so on January 2nd, we're going to not do this. We're going to not show up and do a whole like message from the stage, songs to, you know, all this stuff. We're not going to do it. We're shut down this and we're going to change our whole entire format on January 2nd. And we're going to, in the, in the lobby out here, we're going to set up a, a, a food packing center. And we're going to pack 100,000 meals that are going to go to feed people right here in Kansas City, but mostly going to go around the country to different parts of the Caribbean and to Africa and different parts of the world that are going to be meals from our heart to theirs. Why? Because I believe, and God has compelled our leadership to believe that what we can do is have an impact in one very essential part of people's livelihoods. We can leave them with joy by giving them food. We have the resources. We can do this. And so we're, we're putting it out there. Steve Fisher came to me the other day. He said, Dan, I think it's... I think I think the number is 100,000 meals. And I said, Steve, how many, of you have, how many of these have you packed in the past? He says, well, we haven't done one of these in a couple of years, but um, this would be an, a really aggressive ask for us. 100,000 meals is a lot because we're going to pay to ship these things and we're going to figure out how to get them to places that are where they're going to be needed the most. And I said, Steve, can't we do like 50,000? And he goes, Dan, where's your faith? And I said, 150,000 is what I really said. <clears throat> 100,000 meals, 100,000 people that are little, you know, that's like 100 times the people who are worshiping with us on a weekend. Could we as a church have a 100x impact? Here's what I need from you. I need you to just go pray. Just go talk to God. Ask him if you would be someone who could be a dream maker in this. Because here's what I know to be true, is that when we step in where God's asked us to move, when we find ways to be the volunteers, when we give sacrificially, we receive joy, but we leave an impact. And Heartland, I don't know about you, but this time of year, this time of our church's life, I believe that God is on the move. And so we had better be ready to move. Amen? And so if you're all about that, I'd love for you just to stand to your feet as I pray. God, we as a people have learned so much from your word and the way that you led your people 
from having nothing to being a community, from enduring pain to coming back to joy, for being forsaken and outside the city to being brought in and settled in your holy city. And we realize today, God, you're not calling us to build walls. You're not calling us to build buildings. You're not calling us to, you're calling us, <laughs> you're calling us to simply obey Jesus. You're calling us, God, to give the way Jesus gave, to be joyful the way Jesus is joyful, and to be part of the impact that Jesus is having right here in our community and around the world. And so, so God, here, here's our prayer. Would you help us move when you prompt us to move? It's in your name we pray. Amen.